0: Welcome to Bank of Christian Church on this Sunday, the 19th of February, 2023. Welcome to you in the church here itself. Welcome to you if you're listening in online. I do hope you enjoy the service this morning. We're here gathered together, aren't we, to worship together, to pray, to sing God's praises. We'll read the Bible together. And Duncan, this morning, our pastor, will be opening up the passage from Acts chapter 19 with a, a title that sounds a bit ominous, doesn't it? Following Jesus is Costly. So uh, we look forward to that a bit later on. I'd like to just ask Simeon if he would mind coming up now. We're reading from Acts chapter 19. For those of you who don't have a Bible in front of you, if you've got the notices, they're on the inside sheet of the
1: notices.
0: Thank you, Simeon.
1: Appreciate Thank it. you. Good morning, church. So the reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts chapter 19, and I'm starting my reading from verse 11 to 20, and I'll also take Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and bound them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Chapter 20, verse one. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said, farewell, and departed for Macedonia. Dear God, may your word be planted deep in our spirit, Help us not to be forgetful, hearers, but do us of your word. Also help us to meditate on your word, and so build our lives on the rock of your truth. Amen.
2: Um, it's nice to be back in this place, opening God's words for you um, and for us all. Um, um, thank you, especially for your prayers over these last uh, four or five weeks. Uh, we are slowly adjusting to having an additional person at home, um, but do, do, do continue to pray for us, um, and we're thankful for God's, God's blessing. Um, turn back with me to Acts chapter 19, if you would. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus told that parable to teach his followers what it meant to follow him. It pictures a man out in an empty field. The blandness of the scene might cause most of us to turn away. There's There's nothing of interest here, but this man in the field has eyes to see because he finds buried in the field an unspeakably valuable treasure. And from the moment that he found it, everything else that he owned in the world paled into insignificance, so much so that he sold everything he had so that he could buy the field and obtain the treasure. Jesus is telling us that he is the most precious thing that anyone could ever possess. And discovering that changes your perspective on everything. How could it not? And he's telling his followers that to possess this greatest treasure will cost you everything. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear these powerful parables, I want to ask, so so what what does that actually look like? I mean, I, I understand the picture, but what might it mean for someone to actually do that? Well, this passage of Scripture in Acts 19 helps us. And how much we need this passage of Scripture. There will be some here who have yet to see Jesus as the great treasure. There will be others here who could say that at one point they thought of him as the greatest treasure, but circumstances have meant that he's lost some of his luster. We need a passage like this to remind us of the supreme worth of Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, we're we're joining Paul on mission. He's on a mission to tell others about Jesus, and he has arrived in the city of Ephesus in Asia, which we today would call Eastern Turkey. This is now Paul's third missionary expedition. The previous one had taken him to Europe, and now he's going back over old ground, strengthening the churches that had been planted in Asia. And it takes Paul back to Ephesus where he'd briefly visited before. Paul was in Ephesus for more than two years, which when you think about how he was sometimes chased out of a city after three weeks, it's really quite remarkable. Luke, who writes this book of Acts for us, he records four scenes from Paul's time in Ephesus two of them we saw last week. He encountered 12 disciples of John the Baptist who had an incomplete understanding of the gospel. Uh, The second scene we saw Paul preached in the synagogue for three months, but when the Jews started to speak evil of the gospel, he moved on, he hired a lecture hall, and he taught the scriptures there day after day for two years. The other two scenes from Ephesus of what we're going to look at today. They show us how the church grew in Ephesus, how the mission was moved along to other places. And in each of these scenes, we learn that following Jesus is costly. So I want to ask you a question. Who has the right to speak for Jesus? Who gets to speak for him? Think about it. There is is an ongoing debate in the Church of England at the moment. Some bishops on one side say the complete opposite of some bishops on the other side, and yet both of them claim to represent Jesus Christ. So my question comes again, who gets to speak for Jesus? Who has the right to do so? How can we tell? Believe it or not, the answer to that question is here in the opening couple of verses that we looked at today. Acts 19 from verse 11. They describe some extraordinary signs that accompanied Paul in his ministry. Paul wasn't just a preacher. He had a a trade. He was a tent maker. And what we read of here is that such was the power of God at work through this apostle that even the sweaty cloths and the dirty aprons that he had used in his labor When they were taken to the sick and the demon-possessed, they brought healing. And this isn't the first time we've seen this kind of thing in Acts. Back in Acts chapter 5, we read that even if Peter's shadow fell on someone, then they were healed. And of course, you go back to the Gospels and Jesus himself, we read of someone, even just touching the hem of his garment was enough to bring healing these miracles were never ends in themselves, but they were there to confirm the the identity and ultimately the message of these men. Peter told the crowd on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Paul would later write to the Corinthians to remind them of how he is an authentic apostle of Jesus Christ because, as he puts it, the signs of an apostle had been done in their presence. And here's an example of this, signs of an apostle. These first two verses that we've read together, they're telling us that Paul was the real deal. He really did speak for Jesus Christ. And I suppose in answering the Church of England debate, whoever stands in line with the apostles and their message, well, they are the ones who truly speak in the name of Jesus, not necessarily the ones with the most lofty titles. And what then follows from this description of this remarkable happenings around Paul is we learn a valuable lesson. We learn that misusing the name of Jesus is dangerous. Misusing the name of Jesus is, is dangerous. So if this affirmation of the genuineness of Paul's ministry stands in a real contrast to the characters who rumble onto the scene in verse 13. They're described as Jewish exorcists. Men who traveled around the region casting out evil spirits. Um, they had this wonderful brand. They're seven sons of Siva. And they had heard, or maybe they had even seen the kind of power that was at work through Paul in the name of Jesus Christ. And so they seek to tap into that power. There is a man in Ephesus whose life is in ruins. He has been dominated by an evil spirit, and these supposed exorcists, they're going to sort this out for him. Verse 13, what do they say? I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They command him by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And what follows is laughable. There's a certain comedy value to what goes on here because the evil spirit through this possessed man speaks and the evil spirit is perplexed. To these sons of Siva, he says in verse 15, Jesus I know... And, and, and I recognize who Paul is, but who on earth are you? Who are you? You see, the power of Jesus Christ was not at their disposal just because they uttered His name. They wanted the power of Jesus without having Jesus Himself. And this is further confirmation that these Miracles that surrounded the Apostle Paul were never to be miracles in isolation. They were to point to Jesus and specifically to point to the good news about Jesus. And so, what a devastating picture unfolds here. These seven men, we're told, they are mastered, they are overpowered, they have to run out of the house having been beaten up and stripped naked. These men are. Powerless. Simply having the name of Jesus on their lips does not give them any power or authority over the forces of evil. They flee the place being battered and naked. And what a picture this is for us of the dangerous position that human beings are in. Without Jesus Christ, we are utterly, utterly vulnerable to the powers of evil. When Paul wrote a letter back to the church in Ephesus, he reminded the Christians there of what their lives were like before they became Christians. Here's one of the things he says to describe it. He says, you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's saying there, before you were Christians, you were simply following the evil one, And here these sons of Siva show how utterly powerless they are in the face of evil. And this can be hard for us to take in, can't it? We're reading these verses and I'm acting like it's all normal, but people possessed by evil spirits, that's that's not normal experience for us. But the Bible does teach us that there is a spiritual dimension to this world and that there are spiritual forces that operate in opposition to God. And the chief target of that opposition is that part of God's creation that has been made in God's image, human beings. And naturally speaking, we are at their mercy, utterly lacking the resources to withstand their attack. The devil enslaves people in sin But the message that the Apostle Paul brought to Ephesus is the message we still proclaim today, that God has sent His Son, Jesus, to rescue. The Apostle Paul gave his life to telling others that Jesus had lived a perfect life, but willingly had died a sinner's death, oppressed and seemingly destroyed by the powers of evil. But God raised Him from the dead. So that that very instrument that the devil thought would defeat God turned out to be the victory of Christ over the powers of evil forever. Now it is Jesus who has power over all things, including evil spirits. And the only way that any of us can be freed from the power of the devil is to trust in Jesus. We need to belong to Him we need to do more than just say His name like these guys tried. We need to know Him. It's not enough to say, I command you in the name of Jesus who someone else knows. And if this part of of Acts 19 is screaming anything at us, it is surely, don't mess about with the name of Jesus. Don't mess about with Jesus. Now, We see this all around us. Don't we? Some people use his name as a swear word. That's a very obvious way that that people can mess around with the name of Jesus. But some other ways come far closer to home. Some people turn up to church every week and sing some hymns, but they've never trusted him. You're messing around with the name of Jesus, if that's you. Some people turn up to church and share in communion. They take bread and wine in remembrance of the sacrifice Jesus has made, but yet they don't know him. You're messing around with the name of Jesus. It's dangerous. Some people pray to Jesus in a crisis and yet ignore him every other day of their lives. Dear friends, you're messing with the name of Jesus. And all of those examples I've given are what it means to have Jesus outside of you and he will be of no benefit to you out there. You need to personally trust in him. You need to believe and place your trust in Jesus Christ. Then he becomes yours. Then he becomes more than just the name of someone who someone else knows. He becomes your Jesus. He becomes your Savior. And this is something that the people in Ephesus understood that day, you don't mess around with Jesus. Look at verse 17. What's the outcome of all of this? These seven sons of Siva get beaten up. Verse 17, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That word means exalted or glorified or even magnified. In other words, they understood clearly who it was they were dealing with. The name of the Lord Jesus had never been so big in their minds as it was on that day. And here's what I want you to notice. That that was something more than just information. It wasn't something that they could put in a little compartment in their brain and say, well, yes, well, that's good. Now I understand who Jesus is and the sort of God I'm dealing with when I speak about him. It it can't ever just stop there. What it shows us here is that when Jesus is big, so is your sin. When Jesus is big, so is your sin. Because look at the response of the people. They believed, verse 18, they were convicted, Of their sin. They came, how does Luke put it for us, they came confessing and divulging their practices. And we read on the sort of practices that that, that, um, Luke has in mind here are they were dabbling in the magic arts. They'd been engaging in witchcraft, conjuring, occultic practices. We're not given the details and I suppose the specifics are not so important but the principle is clear here Such was the conviction they felt that they wanted anything in their life that had kept them from God to be brought out into the open and to be destroyed forever. That's what they wanted. And so for a great many of them, books of spells, things that had tapped into harmful things, things that had caused them to depend upon magic spells rather than depend upon the living God. Jesus was big in their eyes. And in that moment, they could see just how great their sin was and they wanted to be free of it. And so they burn everything that represented their rebellion against God. Now, you could argue that their behavior was foolish. After all, surely they would find someone who would buy the books. You could still get rid of them, but at least recoup some of the cost. But no, that's not what's on their mind. They burn them. And we're given this rough calculation, 50,000 pieces of silver. Why destroy what you could sell? Because when Jesus is big, so is your sin. And so appalled is the believer by that thing that he would give anything to see it destroyed. So it raises questions for us. Why is it then that a Christian can still be a greedy lover of money And try to justify it. How is it that a Christian can keep going back to pornography? How is it that a Christian can be abusive towards his wife? I can tell you part of the answer because Jesus is not big, because Jesus is not big enough. If you or I are in love with our sin then we are not in love with the Savior. If I think that I can go on sinning as a Christian then I do not understand who Jesus is. I think it's okay to mess around with the name of Jesus. This passage says that is dangerous stuff. Because when you do understand who Jesus is the response is fear, belief, conviction of sin and repentance, turning away from it. You don't mess around with Jesus. One of the great priorities in life, therefore, is to magnify the name of Jesus. Oh, we must pray that God would never allow the name of Jesus to be small in our minds. Because when he is small, then our sin seems like such a small thing as well. This is, friends, why we gather for worship. This is why we meet together to read the Bible together, to pray together. This is why we remember the Lord in communion, because these are the things that make Jesus big in our lives. When we see Him for the beautiful Savior who has so loved us that He would give Himself for us and suffer in our place to bring us into our family, then what other response could there be than the response of, Say William Cooper, who said, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. And this is how the mission of the gospel progresses in Ephesus because Jesus is big in the minds of God's people Luke gives us a progress report in verse 20. It's the fifth progress report that he's uh, given us throughout the book of Acts. There's one more to come at the very end of the book. And what he does there, verse 20, "So the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily." He, he, he shows us the, again, the unstoppable mission of God. As people receive Jesus by believing in Him, repenting of sin, it is the word of the Lord. It is increasing and prevailing. And that progress report actually serves to end a section of this book. Um, From verse 21 through to the end of the book, we've got this final section of the book of Acts. And um, we're going to read those verses together. Let me me read um, from verse 21 down to the end of the chapter. Now, after these events. Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made Who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, "'Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!' And when the town clerk had quietened the crowd, he said, "'Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky?' "'Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, "'you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, "'for you have brought these men here "'who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. "'If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him "'have a complaint against anyone, "'the courts are open and there are proconsuls, "'let them bring charges against one another. "'But if you seek anything further, "'it shall be settled in the regular assembly, "'for we really are in danger of being charged "'with rioting today.' since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The city of Ephesus was famed for having one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Artemis, a place of worship dedicated to the Greek goddess of the hunt. She was their mother goddess and an integral part of the identity of the city. Now, we're living in a season of industrial action in the UK at the moment. Trades unions are standing up for the workers, and things were no different in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Uh, Demetrius makes a living by producing silver statues of the goddess Artemis. And over the last two years, he has been observing a fall-off in business. And as he projects forward to what the coming year might look like, he does not like what he sees. His problem is, verse 26, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. In other words, Paul's message undermines his profitability. And this is the bottom line for Demetrius. I mean, this is where he starts. From this craft we get our wealth. The ministry of the gospel is costing them money. But in order to get something done about it, he needs to stir up some other kind of sentiment and I don't know. He, he, he taps into some Ephesian patriotic sentiment. He makes this well used argument well, friends, this is just the thin end of the wedge. Because, first of all, it will be our trade that goes. And then the great temple will be despised. And then, you know what? They'll be removing the statue out of the temple. That's what's happening. And it enrages his fellow craftsmen. Something must be done. And we see, not for the first time in the book of Acts, that when people trust in Jesus, others feel threatened. When people trust in Jesus, others feel threatened. The great Ephesian motto comes to the fore. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It rings out from these guys. They take it out into the city with a vague message of how Paul is trying to destroy our very identity. And a mob starts to form. But notice that they are, from the very outset, they're in confusion. You see that in verse 29? They go to the amphitheater, but in verse 32, some cry out one thing, some cry out another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't know why they had come together. The amphitheater, which is is what is on the picture behind me, held 25,000 people. And Paul naturally thought, what an opportunity, 25,000 people come together, if I could just go in there and explain. But everyone around him urged him not to go. Verses 30 and 31, they know if he enters the theater, they will likely kill him. A Jewish representative called Alexander, he's told to go in presumably to distance the Jews from the commotion. But all that happens is that the the confused mob drown everything out for two hours by simply chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But Luke wants to make the point for us that the crowd, they've got it wrong. That Demetrius and his trade union have got it wrong. And that's shown to be the case by the the town clerk from the city of Ephesus, who comes across to us in that final paragraph as a a very fair-minded man. He says, you know, if Artemis is who we think she is, then you shouldn't have to worry about what these guys are doing. It's a bit like when you have an antisocial neighbor. You've got a few options available to you. You could take some direct action against them. You're likely to get into some trouble there, aren't you? No, you have recourse to the council, even to the police if needs be. And that's what happens here too. The, the town clerk stands up and he says, look, if you've got a complaint, then you can go through the proper channels. Because as far as I can see, these guys have done nothing wrong. Now, it is the case today, similarly, that, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, people feel threatened by it. If you read of historic revivals, one of the things that often changed in communities because of them was that pubs closed down through lack of trade. And there are stories that go along with that about how, well, landlords weren't best pleased. And that's what we're seeing here, isn't it? That as lives were changed, well, patterns of living changed. But it's not just in economics that these things change, it's probably especially the case in relationships, isn't it? A husband or a wife easily feels threatened when their spouse becomes a Christian, the relationship changes. Same can be the case for parents and children, friendship groups. People very easily feel threatened, and for some that can even mean losing those relationships. Maybe you've experienced something of that. I suppose as we read these verses we're to we're to not be discouraged. We don't stand at a unique point. We're not experiencing unique things. We're seeing this pattern of what happens as the gospel is proclaimed. People come to faith and others often feel threatened. It's a pattern that goes all the way back to the Lord Jesus himself. He says in Mark 10, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, Jesus is saying that it can be very costly to follow him. People feel threatened. Some people cut us off. But Jesus reminds us that what we come to is the unspeakably great treasure. That there is nothing that could be stripped from us that would ever come close to the preciousness of what we find in Jesus. Because first and foremost, we find him. And secondly, because we find all those others who have found him. And that is this, this Preciousness of this thing called the church. That while it is costly to follow Jesus, and in this world we may lose things, lose opportunities, lose relationships, what we gain amongst the people of God is a hundredfold more. Or is it? Or is it? Because it's a real challenge about what kind of church family we are, what kind of church family we want to be. Is this really a place where someone who finds it costly to follow Jesus will find a hundredfold more? The message of the gospel had, in the space of two or three years, changed something of the landscape of the city of Ephesus. Paganism was down, Jesus' worship was up, but how had that happened? It was not because they had changed some laws in Ephesus, it was not because the apostles had gained some influence in high places, it was because they had seen hearts changed one by one as people believed in Jesus Christ. Now we ought to seek righteous laws, not speaking against that, but we must not doubt that the gospel truly changes a society one soul at a time as people discover and possess the unspeakably precious treasure that is Jesus Christ. And as they do that, They see no price too high to pay to have him. An economic cost, a relationship cost, a popularity cost. For following Jesus is costly, but Jesus is the true treasure. Is he yours? Because just as Paul could do in Ephesus, I offer him to you today, Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners who calls you to come, to trust him, and to find that indeed he is the most precious treasure of all.
0: Thank you for being with us this morning. I'm sure if any of you have got any questions or you just want any time of prayer, Duncan will be available. I'll be here at the front. Um, We have tea and coffee afterwards. Please join us for a little time of fellowship. But in the meantime, let's just say the grace together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. God bless you all.